This morning we're going to begin a new sermon series entitled The Seven Churches of Revelation. And we're going to spend the next several weeks walking through the first three chapters of this book. And you know, when you think of Revelation, the book of Revelation, I'm sure many things come to your mind. You may think back a few decades ago to the Left Behind series that came out in book form and movie form. Uh, You may think of television preachers, you know, with their charts and graphs and timetables and scary pictures. Uh, Some of you may be thinking about people who predict when Jesus is coming. And they have these calculations and they use the book of Revelation in their mathematical formulas. And they're going to tell us the day and the hour and the time and all these interesting ideas. Um, When you think of the book of Revelation, you think of very interesting images, don't you, if you've ever read it. Uh, you know there are some very interesting images, visions, and symbols in this book. You, you think of lampstands and trumpets and bowls and scrolls and seals. And you think of dragons and beasts and horns and the battle of Armageddon. You think of the end of the world. You think of the return of Jesus. You think of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. I mean, the book of Revelation is an interesting book, to say the least. And because of the uniqueness of the book, I want to spend our time this morning together explaining the context for the specific messages that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, these messages to the seven churches. And by looking at how this book originated, we'll see the significance of the book. And what I'm hoping that we'll see is not only that the message of the book of Revelation, how significant it was for the first century church, but that we'll see actually that this message of John is very relevant to us today. Because you see, John was exiled to the island of Patmos during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. And John tells us this in verse 9 when he, where he writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos uh, was a barren, uh, rocky little island. And John was banished to this island because of his faithfulness to Jesus. And it was on this island that John received this revelation from God. And this word revelation means an unveiling. In other words, God is going to reveal something to John that we would not otherwise be able to figure out apart from God showing him this is in fact what's going to happen. That's what the word revelation means. Look at verse 1 again. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So this revelation about Jesus Christ that we find in this book finds its origin in God, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who then recorded what he saw. He saw these visions and he recorded what he saw. And then he says that this revelation is about these things that must soon take place. They must take place as in God will bring them to pass, and they will soon take place, as in they will begin very soon, and they will continue until it is completed. 
So the, th- the things that must soon take place are those things recorded in the book of Revelation. And it's these things that give hope and strength in the darkest of times. You see, John was exiled to the island under the reign of Domitian. Now, Domitian was a different type of ruler. Uh, when you think of Christian persecution in the Roman Empire, I would imagine the first name that comes to your mind is Nero, right? You think of the Emperor Nero. And uh, no, doubt, no doubt Christians experienced persecution under Nero. I mean, Nero, tradition has it, was responsible for the deaths of the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul. And he clearly did some very terrible things to Christians, but mainly in the city of Rome. Because, see, there was this great fire in Rome, and many believe that Nero actually set the fire to, in order to burn down some buildings so he could build his own buildings. So he needed an scapegoat, and so he blamed the Christians which this is what fueled the persecution of the Christians within the city of Rome. So it was more of a localized persecution. It wasn't an empire-wide persecution of Christians because they worshiped Jesus, but rather it was a, a localized persecution of the Christians. And so Nero certainly did some very terrible things, but it wasn't a persecution that, that ran throughout the empire. And Christians were allowed to practice their faith for several years after Nero, but what precipitated the empire-wide persecution was something called Caesar worship or emperor worship. You see, in many ways, Rome was um, and is to be applauded for what it accomplished. I mean, the Roman Empire was able to bring about some stability for its citizenship. You know, it's called the Pax Romana. You know, it's the, the peace of Rome. They were able to bring some order, some safety and peace to its citizens. And the people were very appreciative. And you can imagine, if you lived in a time that was very chaotic, very war-torn, just think about if you lived in a country like that, and then a leader came in and was able to establish peace and order, and people began to thrive once again, I mean, you would be thankful. And the people were thankful, and they were thankful to the emperor, Caesar, for bringing about this order and this peace. And this appreciation, though, began to develop into a type of spiritual worship of whoever held the title of Caesar. Now, as you read history, you realize that many of these Caesars or these emperors, uh, they actually um, minimize this idea that somehow they were divine and they should be worshipped throughout the empire. I mean, most of the emperors actually minimized that and did not promote that. But you do have a few that really embraced it. And Domitian was one of those emperors. When he became the emperor in 81 AD, the empire changed. And the relationship between the church and the Roman Empire changed dramatically. You see, Domitian demanded that everyone who addressed him in speech or in writing must begin their address with Lord and God. So he's somewhat full of himself, you know. So when he, he's basically saying, when you write me, when you talk to me, you refer to me as Lord and God. So he's really embracing this idea of, yeah, you should worship the emperor, that he is divine. All government announcements and proclamations had to begin with, our Lord and God Domitian commands. You know, this, that, or the other. And so all men were required to say, Caesar is Lord. 
And so this became the government that the church found itself dealing with. And so the church found itself in an underground church scenario. And you can imagine the church felt powerless against this mighty empire that was pushing down this persecution and demanding that its citizenship refer to the emperor as Lord and God. That Caesar is Lord. And the situation seemed hopeless. I mean, they were under severe persecution. Uh, Domitian would reign for 15 years. And all during this time, they were suffering severe trials. And as a Christian, just put yourself in that position. I mean, it would be hard to imagine things getting better. I mean, you would be remembering all these uh, verses and teachings of Jesus and the apostles talking about suffering and things are going to get bad. And you're saying, things are pretty bad now and I don't see how they could possibly get better. The The Christians during Domitian's reign, I don't think they could have fathomed the idea that in just over 200 years, Christianity would not only be permitted in Rome, but actually promoted I mean, at this time in the history of the Roman Empire, under Domitian's reign, it was a hopeless situation, it seemed to be. And the church felt powerless to deal with the power of the emperor. And so, you have John, who clearly is not going to go along with the idea that Caesar is Lord, right? And so at some point in time, I guess John was confronted with this uh, demand to refer to Caesar as Lord. And obviously he denies that and claims that Jesus is Lord. And therefore he is banished to the island of Patmos. He is exiled. And it was on this island that God sent him a vision. And it was a vision of hope. It was a vision of power. And it was a reminder of what Jesus has done. It was a reminder of who Jesus is. And it was a reminder of what Jesus will do. So look with me at verses 4-8. through This is what John writes. He says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you in peace. And then I want you to notice this Trinitarian reference in the following verses. He says, grace to you in peace from Him who is, who was, and who is to come. So he's referring to God the Father here. And John has given us the Greek version of the I Am title that God gave to Moses, explaining Himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then He goes on to say, And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And many believe that John is referring here to the Holy Spirit. And the seven spirits represent the portion of the Spirit of God that rests and is at work in the midst of the seven churches. And so many believe he's referring here to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, John writes, and from Jesus Christ. So you have greetings, grace and peace from John, and grace and peace from the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And then John gives us several truths that remind the reader of who Jesus is, what Jesus had done, and what Jesus will do. And look at your scripture and see what he says. He says, Jesus is the faithful witness. He faithfully, Jesus faithfully revealed God to the world and remained faithful to the Father's will even unto death. So you think that might be an encouragement to the people receiving this message from John under the reign of Domitian? 
You know, the faithfulness of our Savior surely would have encouraged the early church to remain faithful in the midst of difficulty. And it should encourage us as well. Then he says, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now, he's not saying that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, because we know others were raised from the dead, even under Jesus' ministry. But what he's saying is that Jesus is the first one that conquered death and now lives forever. He is the first in importance. And he is the ruler of the kings on earth. I mean, just think of that, that landing on you when you were a, a Christian under Domitian's reign. You know, in the underground church, so to speak. And then you hear John reminding you that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. And this had to be a comforting thought because they saw their earthly rulers defying God. And seeking to put down the church... And John reminds us that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Their authority, these kings on the earth, their authority is a derived authority. And it's a temporary authority. But the day will come when they will give an account to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And John then begins to praise Jesus by reflecting on several truths of the gospel. He writes, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And so this very king of kings that John refers to in the previous verses is the one who died for us. And the reason he died for us is because he loved us. And what I want you to notice here is not that he loved us, but that he loves us. He continues to love. And he has made us a kingdom, he says, a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So because of Jesus, we have been brought into the kingdom of God. And we've been given access to God. Which is quite the privilege. And then in verse 7, John gives us a summary statement of what Jesus will do. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So the world as we know it, John's painting this picture, he's, he's recording this vision, and he's, he's telling us the world as we know it will come to an end, and when every eye sees the coming Christ, there will be both shouts of joy, obviously those who are anticipating the coming of Christ by faith, uh, the, the Christians, I mean obviously they will be looking forward to that, but there will also be these sounds of wailing. You know, shouts of joy will come from those who anticipate the coming of Christ by faith. But then you will have these sounds of wailing as well because you have those who are still in their sin realizing that they're about to face their judge. And this will happen because, he says, God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lord God who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. These things will take place because God is the Almighty One. And this is the One from whom grace and peace comes to us. And the way they come to us is through Jesus Christ. So while we wait for Christ to return, we must listen to His message to the church. And that's what we're going to look at in chapters 2 and 3. But before we get to those messages, and we'll start that next week... We again need to, to, to uh, reflect on the messenger. 
Who is this Christ? Who is this risen Christ who is giving these messages to his church? To look at verses 10 through 20. John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, in verse 20, we find out that these seven golden lampstands, and we'll talk more about this next week. But these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches mentioned in verse 11. And in the midst of these lampstands, or this lampstand with seven lampstands, perhaps... John sees one like the Son of Man. Now listen to how he describes the Son of Man. And this is significant for us to embrace the messages that will come. Because we need to see this risen Christ. This is is who is given this message. And so we need to embrace who He is. And John is trying to describe who He is in these verses. He says, He was clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around His chest. And what we know is that these types of robes were worn by the high priest in Israel. They were also worn by royalty and even worn by prophets. And we know that Jesus is our high priest. We read that in several places in the New Testament. He is our king and he has a message for for us from God. And John says that the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And here we have a description that reaches back to the book of Daniel. Have you ever encountered somebody that is like just a fanatic about Lord of the Rings or Star Trek or Star Wars? It's like they're always making references to these movies. It's like, you know, whether speaking some elf language or talking about this place or, you know, may the force be with you or whatever it may be. You know, they have these little sayings they always use from their favorite like stories or their favorite movies. Well... Dan, you know, John's favorite movies or stories were the Old Testament books. And so he was steeped in these books. And so what you're going to notice as you read through the book of Revelation, he's going to be reaching imagery from the, the Old Testament left and right to help try to describe the indescribable. And so one of his favorite books is the book of Daniel. And he's going to pull so much imagery from the book of Daniel to try to explain who Jesus is, this risen Christ And why we should listen to him. And this is one of the instances of that. We have this description. He has this white hair. And uh, this is a description that reaches back to the book of Daniel. And is used to describe the person called the Ancient of Days. He's referring to God himself. And this white hair symbolizes great age. And speaks to the eternal existence of the Son of God. It also speaks of the divine purity of the Son. And John continues and writes, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This kind of goes back to what uh, Jonathan prayed in the offertory prayer. You know, Jesus sees the heart. You know, his eyes are this penetrating, he had this penetrating vision where he sees reality the way it is. Not the way we may pretend it to be or try to present ourselves, but he sees it. He sees everything correctly. His vision is penetrating. And in verse 15 we read his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And they're not real sure 
they're tr- you're trying to translate the Greek here. They're not really sure if it's bronze, but they know it's some type of alloy, some type of metal. And the idea that it's, it's strong, it's burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, some believe that this refers to strength and his ability to carry out what he says he's going to do. And then John says that his voice, his voice was like this roar of many waters. You know, have you ever stood at the the base of a a mighty waterfall? You know, it's so loud. It's just, it's hard to even have a conversation because it's just so loud. And whether John's thinking of something like that, or perhaps John is just, he's so used to the island of Patmos, this small little rocky island. He's constantly hearing the roar of the waves crashing on the rocks. And he's saying, you know, this power, this, this, this loud Sound that drowns everything else out. That's like his voice. His voice was like that. It's like the roar of many waters. You know, the prophet Ezekiel, which is another favorite book of John's that he keeps pulling from, the prophet Ezekiel uses a similar description to describe the voice of God. So, what we see here is John is just piling up the divine attributes as he describes the risen and glorified Christ as he writes what he sees. And John looks and he sees in his right hand he he held seven stars and we read in verse 20 that these seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches and we'll unpack that more in the weeks to come and john sees from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword now this is not some long sword that you like using fencing or something like that but it's almost more like a dagger You know how even a dagger kind of looks like a tongue. But the idea is that the Word of God is powerful. It's penetrating. It slices through falsehood. And we see the same idea in in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, where we read, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what we also need to recognize here is that the words of Jesus are the words of God. His words are the words of God. And finally, John says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's hard to read that and not think back to when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And he, he... he displayed His glory for those three men to see. And so the appearance of Jesus was so striking, just like it was on that mountain, and perhaps even more intense, that John's immediate reaction, you read it there, is that he falls to his face. Look at verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. I mean, the vision of the risen Christ was so powerful that John could not think of anything else to do but hit the ground. And this reminds us of that passage in Philippians where every knee will bow at the risen Christ. I mean, that's the presence that he brings. Is that every knee will bow before the risen Christ. But notice here, though. Notice here what John tells us that Jesus did when John hit the ground. He says, but he laid his right hand on me. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died 
And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So he puts his hand, his right hand of protection and security. The same hand that was holding the seven stars. And he places it on John. And he says, fear not. Now just think again. Think about the the churches that are under the, the crushing persecution of Domitian. With hope fading, you know, they're feeling they're feeling powerless. And then God gives his people a vision, this vision of the risen Christ through John. And Jesus puts his right hand, his hand of security and protection on John. And by extension, I would say even on us as well. And he says, Fear not, fear not, because I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys. I have the keys to death and Hades. And so can you put yourself in that position? In in the reign of Domitian, the church is is struggling because of persecution. It's a tense time. You know, you don't need much of an imagination to imagine a hopeless situation, right? I mean, we've all been there, or we're going to be there in those moments where we feel hopeless. In other words, we feel powerless that we can't change the circumstance, uh, that we can't think of how this is going to get better. Whether it's a circumstance we're facing at work or a relationship or a diagnosis. I mean, we all come to those points where we feel like things are just out of control. We can't do anything about it. And there's nothing. I just can't. I can't see how this is going to get any better. Well, that's how the church felt. In that day. And so John shares with them this vision of the risen, conquering Christ in order to give them hope in their hopelessness and strength in their powerlessness. And we've all been there. We've all experienced that hopelessness, that weakness, that things are just out of our control. And I wish I could tell you, you know, well, things are going to get better. They're going to get better in a day or two or three. And they may, and I pray they will, but they don't always, do they? They don't always. You know, there are a lot of Christians that died under the reign of Domitian from persecution. Uh, things don't always get better in this life. Sometimes they do. And we should seek to be a blessing to those around us. And I pray they do. But it's a common experience that we feel powerless at times, that things are out of our control, that we don't see how things can get better. And this is when we need to hear the words of the risen Christ when He says, Fear not. He is the first and the last. He's the living one. He is alive forevermore. And then listen to this. He has the keys to death and Hades. Now let me translate that for you. There is no lock that Jesus doesn't have the key to. Which means there's no person or problem that can close you off to the reach of Christ. There's nothing that can lock you away from the love of Christ. Jesus has the keys. He has the authority. And Jesus can provide the grace that we need. The grace that we need to move through our situations, even though they may seem hopeless. Because Jesus loved us. He loves us. He died for us. And if we trust in Him, not only will we, will we be able to persevere in our problems... Uh, But we will ultimately overcome. That's the message of the book of Revelation. That we ultimately will overcome. That there's more to life than this life. 
Because He has the key. Jesus has the key that opens the door to eternal life. And that door is always open to those who trust in Him. You see, Jesus is the light among the lampstands. He is the light among the lampstands. He is the hope of the church in every age. And He is the hope of every Christian in every situation. And as we prepare to receive His messages to the churches over the next several weeks, let us not forget this image of the risen Christ. That He is the lamp among the lampstands. Let us pray. Father, thank You for this revelation. Thank You for this uh, magnificent image of the risen and glorified Christ. And Lord, I pray You prepare our hearts even this week to receive His messages to the churches and by extension to us as well. And Lord, for those of, of us that may feel hopeless, that may feel powerless to deal with what we're experiencing, may we remember Your words, fear not, You have died and you are alive forevermore. Well, we know, Jesus, you have the keys that can open the doors that no one else can open. Lord, help us to cling to who you are. Help us to cling to your word so that we may persevere in our problems and take comfort in knowing that ultimately we will overcome. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.